we are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Behind the Headlines. Today is Sunday, December the 4th, and we've got a number of different news bits and items and developments that have been occurring in the last week or so, taking a step back a little bit, but also revisiting uh, the Trump presidency developments there. Uh, This week we'll be discussing the developments in Aleppo, Syria, as well as uh, the events in Mosul, Iraq. Uh, There are also some stories taking place in Europe and uh, Austria and Italy in particular regarding uh, reforms and elections. Lots of different things happening this week. Um, But before we even begin, let's say hello to our co-hosts. Here in the studio with me today, I have Mr. Harrison Kelly. Hi, everyone. William Barbet. Hello, everyone. And across the reaches of the Atlantic, we have with us Mr. Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. And the mighty Joe Quinn. Hi there. <laughs> That's a reference to a song, in case anyone missed it. Um, How does the song go? Come on without, come on within. You've not seen nothing like the mighty Quinn. And, and that will end this singing portion of the Behind the Headlines show. No, we want to hear more. No. What do we you want to hear more from Milan? We well, want more. I think, given all the news that's been happening, we might, we might start there. Are there any particular stories that jump out at anyone well, we haven't we haven't really talked about it because we've been pretty much focused on the election so much. But uh, as soon as the election in the states happened, we saw some pretty um, lightning fast um, news out of Syria in Aleppo, which was pretty. Um, well, I don't know how the words to describe it, but uh, pretty interesting stuff going on there. Let's just say that. So. When we left off, I can't even remember the last time we really talked about what's going on in Aleppo, but as listeners probably know, you know, at the for the last several months, since I believe August, East Aleppo has been encircled by the Syrian army and all their allies fighting on the ground there. And it's been kind of like a stalemate for, for most of that time. No real big advances or retreats um, within that part, part of eastern Aleppo. But... What has well, and of course there were the ceasefires related to that because every time the Syrians would launch any kind of offensive on Aleppo, this happened earlier this year, and then again, um, you know, later in the fall, the the U.S. of course um, would start screaming and crying for a ceasefire, and of course ceasefires only come it seems for the U.S. when their guys are losing. They're fine with just the the fighting continuing as long as they're either making gains or, you know, not losing. 
And so that was the kind of status quo for all of this year. And then the, the Syrians encircled Aleppo and everyone, you know, everyone in the West was freaking out. And then Trump wins the election and then the Syrians kind of staged this um, pr- pretty massive, um, you know, attack on eastern Aleppo, what, like two weeks ago, and managed to cut that region held by al-Nusra and, um, you know, Nuruddin al-Zinki and all the other so-called moderate groups. And they split it in half and took, like, the entire top 40% of eastern Aleppo. And so before this happened, um, if, you know, in our comments on Saat and in some of the articles we've all written talking about this, um, we kind of made some predictions or at least just some analyses of the way it is being or has been presented in the media and especially by Western leaders, politicians, spokesmen and stuff like that. Like John Kirby is a great example how there was even from a couple of weeks ago when this offensive was going on, there's a, uh, a video of Kirby answering some questions about what's going on in Aleppo and saying basically that the United States government has absolutely no doubt that it was entirely the Russians and the Syrians preventing any uh, civilians from eastern Aleppo getting out. Now, for anyone that's been following the news, not, you know, just by watching watching CNN or NBC, they know that's a total joke, but, you know, the, for the most part, people um, would not be aware of that because they're watching NBC and CNN and, uh, you know, reading the New York Times and all that. So the reality of the situation was that the, the rebels themselves were... Um, refusing to let any civilians leave. There were a few that managed to get out over the last month or so, but yeah, I mean, usually at night, and they had to have, I mean, the they were being like monitored by drones and being essentially given instructions from the Syrian army, you know, over their telephones, you know, when to duck, when to run, so that they wouldn't come under fire from these rebel groups. And so a few managed to get out, but again, none of that made it into the Western media. <clears throat> And so what happens, so, well, what we were saying was, well, you know, one of the reasons that the Americans in particular are so anxious about not letting this happen is because once it did happen, once any significant portion of eastern Aleppo was liberated, the entire lie would would just be completely obvious. Um, and, and you would see that the people in eastern Aleppo actually wanted to be freed, wanted to come back to the to the government-held areas, but were not allowed to. And so this was, it kind of really threatened the, the mainstream uh, narrative because it is such a big lie that the, just the, the slight, I mean, just letting events play out in their natural course, the lie is automatically going to be revealed as such. So what happened is this 40% of eastern Aleppo was liberated. Oh, and by, by today I checked, it's, uh, it's over 50%. So the, the Syrians have managed to, to take um, you know, several new neighborhoods and regions, regions of the city. So 40% is liberated, and what happens? So all these people, like thousands, well, they say the, the Russians estimate that there's about eighty to 90,000 people that were in eastern Aleppo, or this portion that was liberated. And as this was happening, you had... Thousands of people coming into to Western Aleppo. Of course, there are journalists there, including Western journalists, who are interviewing these people. And what do they say? They say that they they try they'd been trying to leave for months. The rebels wouldn't let them. They were um, you know extorting money from them, taking all the food, selling them food at exorbitant prices, giving them. I mean, this one lady or woman, uh, you know, head of a household, 
was saying that they were giving them moldy bread. They didn't have anything, you know, good to eat. It was super expensive. And basically they were, they hated these people. They say what, like, they're, and you can watch interviews with, with these civilians saying that they were, um, you know, they were calling these, these jihadis kufar, which is what the jihadis call everyone else, basically like apostates and uh, just non-Muslims. And uh, these people were evil, beheading them, killing them, you know, shooting them as they were trying to leave. And now there are thousands of people saying this. And and while this is going on, because what, well, for the last year, even though it's been kind of, there's been no major gains in eastern Aleppo, the the military situation, if you look at it, for all this time, the the Russians and, of course, the Syrians have had the opportunity to gain you know, just a, a remarkable amount of intelligence about Eastern Aleppo to be able to observe, find out where all of the, um, like, all of the militants' hangouts are, where their headquarters are, what their movements are, to basically suss out their weak spots. So after Trump won the election, they kind of, um, they put this into operation and said, okay, well, we know what we can do now. And they, basically, they they hit them at their weakest point, managed to join up with the uh, with their allies on the other side of the city, cut off this entire region. They kind of left a, a little portion, so all of the all the militants basically fled south into the region still held by the by the rebels, you know, Al Nusra, and um, managed to just kind of totally tear into their defenses and, and their front lines. The and really put the situation into chaos and put those put the 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 militants um military situation into kind of a basically turn it up a bit and uh mix it up a bit and so because of this they've kind of they've lost the um the advantage they had by holding all these positions they've had to be regrouping and such and so over the last week since this has been happening there have been um that's I'm, i think by now it's probably around 10,000 people who have actually managed to flee the parts that are still held by um, by the rebels, so-called rebels. So even this is a total um, a to- gives the gives the Western media like uh, you know shows it to be the lie that it is because they were saying, oh, these people don't want to leave. The the government isn't letting them leave. Well, once the the defenses of the the rebels were um, kind of broken a bit and thrown into chaos, thousands of people managed to leave. I mean, just you just yeah. have to look at that right there. What's, Go ahead. What is the official? What is the official narrative um, that uh, in the Western press that the residents of Eastern Aleppo did not want to leave, or we were being prevented from leaving by the uh, Syrian and Russian? Well, f- for the most part, it's that they're, that they're being prevented from leaving. Um, there have been, you know, a couple. Right. Okay. Um, a couple okay, well, bits. Let's go with yeah. that one. Okay. Sure. Let's go with that one. That they're being, the official story is that they're being prevented from leaving. Um, so that means they want to leave. And that they were also preventing UN humanitarian aid from coming in as well, right. which is mm-hmm. bullshit. But, so I'm just, just follow through the logic here. They're, these people in Eastern Aleppo wanted to leave. Therefore, they did not want to be around these people uh, who had these uh, jihadi terrorists who had uh, invaded Eastern Aleppo. So they're effectively, the, 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 you know, it's... it's, um, it's uh, it's consistent consistent with the Western narrative that that these people in the Western Aleppo were terrorists that were holding effectively holding the population hostage. 
Well, no, they were just trying to get uh, away from the barrel bombs, Joe. Hmm? They were just trying to get no, away from no, the barrel bombs. Want, oh, trying to get away from the barrel bombs, okay. Um, but they weren't being like, so that, that then the rationale is that that the Russian and Syrian military were killing civilians in an effort to get at the terrorists. Right, that they were right. indiscriminately killing everybody. Right, so it wasn't particularly against the, the civilians, it was just against the... Against no, but, the they, were, end up but they were deliberately targeting civilians and deliberately targeting right. hospitals. Who knows why crazy people because, do crazy things? Well, right, I'm just trying to figure out if there's an official narrative here, because obviously the narrative, the more, more sensible narrative is, is that you know, people just look at history and, and you see that whenever a, a kind of rebel force or a foreign force or whatever comes into a city and takes a city, it takes usually takes the civilian population hostage and um, and won't let them leave uh, because it wants to use them as, um, you know, human shields or that kind of thing. The kind of thing the Israelis do with Palestinians, the kind of thing the Americans did in Iraq, for example, with, with Iraqis and stuff. So, um, yeah. Well, yeah, the uh, the U.S. still wants Assad out, and they want to keep these so-called rebels that are anti-Assad. They want to, they give them, uh, what do you want, how do you want to say, um, legitimacy that they want to voice their opinion and have action to get rid of Assad. So they've got, that's their reason for trying to protect these rebels, which course you know and you can see carrie was just really just on fire <laughs> talking to lavrov over the phone constantly and then of course presenting this peaceful resolution how he's going to separate the terrorists again and mm -hmm. you know all a replay of last time and so of course russia can't really trust carrie and the outgoing mm -hmm. administration but it's just fascinating to see and even europe is is all you know, up in arms about this Aleppo situation all of a sudden. It's like, yeah, and Denmark pulled their contingent from the coalition, apparently, in the last week. And the French, uh, I think it was the, was it a French aircraft carrier or some ship they had in the Mediterranean? Yeah, the Charles de Gaulle. Yeah, they pulled that or for maintenance. For maintenance purposes. So it looks like the, the rats are kind of jumping ship as the, mm. as the operation falls to pieces. Well, the interesting thing about the, uh, this Kerry Lavrov uh, new new round of discussions is uh, as you're saying William you know Lavrov no longer trusts the administration mm -hmm. and so he's saying okay if if you want to if you're proposing a new plan for um, for having uh, the you know jihadis leave uh, Aleppo you have to come up with a timetable and be very specific about what's going to happen when so He's essentially calling his bluff, and uh, and and Russia's been calling the bluff of everybody. Uh, I think it was Theresa May or someone in uh, in England who's come out and said, "Well, we, you know, we still have to get humanitarian aid to to the Syrians, uh, the suffering Syrians of Aleppo." And in the meantime, you know, you have Russian representatives saying, "Oh yeah, well, you haven't even given a a." a, a Crumb a drop of bread, of, a, gr yeah. a crumb of bread or a drop of grain. Meanwhile, five tons showed up from Russia. Well, and and I just read on Sputnik today, 
150 tons of aid came from Russia to Aleppo this weekend. <laughs> and what's interesting, oh, too, is, is that... Go ahead. You can't, you can't cite Sputnik. That's no, Russian propaganda. That's fake news. <laughs> and, and they want all these terrorists to end up in Idlib, which I find interesting as well because I'm hearing reports of Russia and Syria getting ready to make an offensive against mm -hmm. Idlib where all these terrorists are being amassed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, Idlib is the big yeah. stronghold of, of like al-Nusra, and it has been for the last year or so. And so that's what they've been doing with all of these uh, settlements and villages and towns that, that um, sign agreements with the government, uh, amnesty or, well, either amnesty agreements or just... Um, you know, they'll give up a certain region that they're holding, and then they get shuttled over to Idlib, basically just, you know, preparing for the eventual offensive on Idlib. Is that what they've said, or that's what you assume? Yeah. Well, um, that's what I assume. Um, there are people, uh, I've, I've read reports of, not from um, commanders or, you know, like Assad or anything like that, that after Aleppo is taken, the plan is, is going to be to to launch offensives on Idlib province and uh, and Raqqa. So that's, I mean, and if you okay. look at just the, the state of the war, I mean, Assad has said that the, the eventual goal is to retake all territory. So, I mean, they haven't been launching any offensives or trying to take any ground in Idlib, but it's, um, you know, it's it'll come about eventually. Yeah. Well, on the reporting of, um, of Aleppo, and at the same time, this business, the, the same kind of operation going on in, in Mosul. Um, if you look at the two, uh, those two scenarios and how they're being reported in the Western press, it really highlights just how much the Western press is and has been for a long time, particularly the U.S. and European press, has been a mouthpiece for uh, government, effectively, and... Uh, i.e. it may as well, even though a lot of the press in the U in the US is um is private, privately owned, it may as well be state owned. It may as well be the same as RT or Sputnik and what they accuse RT and Sputnik of being, which is just Kremlin mouthpieces. Well CNN, the Washington Post, the Washington Times and all the rest are basically clearly uh mouthpieces of the US government. That's that's their function, that's what they serve because you look at the exactly the same thing is happening in Mosul where you have uh, the U.S. along with the Iraqi army, etc., um, are trying to take a city of a million people from uh, the second biggest city uh, after Aleppo from uh, these ISIS terrorists. And um, but the reporting of that is that it uh, says nothing in the Western press about civilian casualties. Although there is, uh, there are reports about many civilian casualties—a thousand people, a thousand civilians—by uh, uh, some reports. Um, have been killed in Mosul as a result of this allied, quote-unquote, offensive against uh, Mosul. Uh, but you hear nothing about that in, mm -hmm. in the major Western press while they dedicate themselves to highlighting and um, falsifying, effectively, supposed civilian casualties in Aleppo simply because it's Russia and the Syrian army that are uh, trying to free Aleppo from these ISIS terrorists. And the question is, can we all just agree that, you know, uh, ISIS are bad and we want to get, get them out of these, these cities? But no, apparently you can't. Apparently, if you're a member of the Western uh, media, then it's good bombing of civilians. Yeah. Good civilians are non-existent uh, civilian deaths are good bombing 
of Mosul by Allied U.S. forces uh, and bad bombing yeah. of Aleppo by Russian and uh, this is both of them of the same agenda, which is to uh, firing these Western-backed terrorists, which makes it even more farcical. This is the astonishing aspect of this. Um, I mean, w- you know, we were like, yes, when Russia intervened in Syria against ISIS, in part because it was like, that's it, the mask is off, you know, everything's on the table now. Mm-hmm. But Russia dragging this down to the nitty-gritty dogfight against the terrorists, actually dealing with the problem, has not produced that scenario at all, at least as far as information warfare goes. You've got two cities separated by a border, two identical situations, and it's presented in a completely different way. Harrison said earlier, well, now that Aleppo is being liberated, just you wait. The Western media will be forced to have to show it as it is. I, I, no, they'll just adapt. They always do. They'll still lie about this too. Freedom and, freedom and democracy in Iraq, you know. Iraq bathed in freedom and democracy because of 10 years of Operation Freedom and Democracy. Operation Iraqi Freedom, you know. Obviously, that's, if you read the best media, that's, that's the impression you get. But then, you know, it's hard to keep that narrative up when you're faced with, you know, uh, completely different facts on the ground, you know. It's, it's just, it must create a serious level of cognitive cognitive distance in people who, um, who who pay any attention to the Western press or look to the Western press for their for their information because you're getting you're getting completely you're getting a story that is not backed up sometimes even in the same article that is a headline that is not backed up by the facts in the article because they can't because they you know, they'll spin it but they have to report some facts and the facts don't jive with what they're, with the image they're trying to create and it's, mm-hmm. it's just it's ridiculous why would anybody The result is, of course, confusing for anyone observing it from the outside. But what I wonder about is for all the people involved in it, directly or indirectly, in the country, perhaps, say say, military personnel advisors from the U.S., Mm -hmm. how do they understand it? Is it clear to them from the top down what they're supposed to do there? Do they, are they invited to believe that they're there to defeat ISIS? But actually, they all know to go, hush, actually, no, we're not. We're there to augment well, it and so on and do all these other things. You know what I mean? Well, that, that's just them. Yeah. Then there's the Kurds. How do they see it? You know, Everybody's got their own agenda, basically. Right. You know? And um, they're, they're willing to, people involved, directly involved in those kind of things are, uh, are much more, obviously, much better informed and much more aware of the fact that it's a very nuanced situation and there's a real politic kind of thing going on that, that the average person who's just, you know, the armchair uh, general types is, is observing it, they can indulge themselves in whatever kind of narrative or fanciful notions they want. Um, but that's not really what's going on, on the ground. It's f- very far from what those people actually perceive, obviously. So, um, But in terms of the military, most most military people are just kind of uh, are trained to uh, follow orders, the majority of them, and will just follow orders like, like it's a job, you know. <clears throat> and I think in in Mosul, they are, I think there's reportedly about 5,000 U.S. troops uh, involved in, in the so-called liberation of Mosul. And... Um, about 16 of them have been killed, 27 injured or something like that, U.S. troops. So um, they, and they are actually, I think, genuinely, I mean, it's the Iraqi army doing most of the, the fighting, but um, they are actually, I think, trying to do what they say they're trying to do, 
Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, maybe a little bit cautiously to a certain extent and under mm-hmm. under cover yeah. of they are, and I think their agenda is to actually, you know, get the the kudos for having liberated Mosul. You know, <clears throat> but of course they have another agenda for liberating Mosul. Mosul is a massive uh, or a very large um, uh, oil producing area. Whoever controls Mosul controls the oil fields around Mosul. And so obviously that's, you get back to the old war for oil, basically, which is, you know, not wrong on many fronts. Um, but they, um, yeah. Well, in, in Mosul, it, it's a pretty compl- complicated situation because <clears throat> you can hear reports from the ground from the civilians who are worried about this uh, coalition coming in because the Iraqi government was never, never really cared for the, the residents in Mosul, they're a different religious organization. And the residents are actually worried that the situation in Mosul will be no different when the coalition finally takes over. Mm-hmm. It's still going to be the same thing that they're experiencing now with the terrorists there. Well, I'll, I've got a few things to, to say on that and answering Neil's question as well. Um, kind of looking at it from all the different players' perspectives, because I've been I've been reading interviews from and uh, you know statements from all these people for the past couple of weeks, and I've been checking out some of the previous work from uh, this German journalist. He used to be a uh, I believe an MP, also a judge, uh, Jürgen uh, Todenhofer. He's the guy that went into um, Syria a few months ago and had that interview with this, um, you know, this kind of low-level al-Nusra commander um, where he was talking about how they get all their, um, you know, weapons and stuff from Saudi Arabia, Qatar, yes. and uh, Turkey and stuff like that. And he's actually done, he's been doing that kind of thing for like the past 30, 40 years, um, going into war zones and speaking to like the other side, so to speak. And he was the first... Um, or maybe the second journalist to go into the Islamic State in uh, 2014, and he interviewed a whole bunch of guys. Uh, I mean, he was basically he was giving a, given a promise that he wouldn't be killed; <laughs> he'd have freedom to go, you know, for, within IS and uh, and talk to people, and then be given free passage to leave. Harrison, maybe you can just mention the name of that documentary. That um... yeah, it just came out. He because um, he went there in, like I said, in 2014 with his son. Who was a uh, who? Who was the basically the videographer and uh, and videotaped everything, and they just released a one-hour documentary called Inside IS, and uh, it's available on YouTube, on Vimeo. Sorry, um, it's not available for free though. You got to purchase it, but uh, it's 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 really good. You get to see just kind of um, you know what he goes into Mosul and, and uh, you know walks the streets, interviews people, interviews kids, you know walks through the the marketplaces, talks to the these the IS judges and police force and uh, and some of the guys that were um, in the in the fighting force that took Mosul originally the the small group that uh, basically took the city it's it's just pretty insightful to see it from like the inside but um, so he interviews a whole bunch of people and he's got a book about it as well where he interviews interviews Kurds Iraqis um, and then other sources, you know, not Jurgen Tonofer, but uh, interviews like um, special forces guys and guys in the American military. So if we start th- with the Americans, there are kind of there are at least two kind of groups that you have to look at. One's the guys, um, you know, fighting on the ground in Iraq, and then there are the um, the special forces guys that are basically the liaison between the 
um, like they're kind of what joint uh, special operations command. They're the, the liaison between the CIA and the and the special forces. So what happens in that case? You get special forces guys that basically are contracted out by the CIA and then answer to the CIA to engage in these training operations. And there's a website that's that uh, called Softrep that. Uh, um, that Jack Murphy writes for. They kind of focus on military news and special operations and stuff like that. And he's interviewed a lot of these guys that are in, involved in these training operations. And he, he's kind of like a, a, you know, pretty much pro, pro-military, pro pro-army, like kind of, you know, just the main, into pretty much the mainstream just view of the army. And, um, you know, it doesn't buy into conspiracy theories or anything like that. But what he says these special forces guys say he says that they, like for the last year or two, they all know that it's a total joke. They can tell when these guys come in that they're supposed to train, that these are just the next generation of jihadis. They can tell they're lying in their interviews. They say that they've got, um, um, you know, prepared answers because there is there is a vetting process, but the vetting process is so um, by rote. It's just, um, it's just a formality. Like you ask certain questions they have to give certain answers, and if they give the right answers, then you're allowed to train them. So as long as these guys know what answers to give, then these guys will end up training them. But they say it's obvious these guys are, are jihadis. They've, they've told their superiors, their superiors do nothing. And uh, from their perspective, it's just like, they think it's just um, um, uh, like just ignorance, or these guys are just not paying attention, like the CIA guys. I mean, of course, you can say um, that it's totally deliberate and they're just using these special forces guys. And But from their perspective, they're totally unhappy with the situation as it is. They don't want to train these guys. In fact, they've been trying to do a... They've been deliberately even sabotaging it at some times and refusing to train them. And curiously, we had those um, two or three special forces guys that were killed in Jordan a week or two ago. Um, and they were they were killed entering the, one of these training bases... And they were killed by a well, reportedly by a, the a Jordanian guard at the gate for the base, but um, but they've been saying that the, that there are so-called you know ISIS infiltrators in these groups for this for this whole time. So at least on some level, the special for, a lot of these special forces guys can see part of the situation and know there's something weird going on, and that it's it's not you know first of all it just doesn't work, and second of all they're there may be like a hidden agenda there, but if you see, if you look, if you talk to the guys that are on the ground, you know, working with the Kurds, for example, um, like Joe was saying, like these guys really are engaged in real operations, and in in a lot of cases, they really are, you know, so you know, fighting ISIS, like when the when the Kurds took the city of Manbij in in northern Syria. I mean, there really was a lot of fighting, and of course, a lot of civilians died too. Um, but these guys, you know, they believe in what they're doing and in, and they actually do what they do when they're allowed to do it. So this gets back to an interview with some of the Kurds in northern Iraq. Um, Jürgen Totenhofer interviewed them and he was, well, first of all, he came to the conclusion that these guys were terrified of ISIS um, because, like, he, he was talking to Kurds who, who say that, you know, we've fought the Turks, we've fought helicopters and planes and all kinds of stuff, and... Um, ISIS is a totally different thing because they've got all of the, the Iraqis, um, you know, massive heavy weaponry and these guys aren't afraid of dying. Like they're, they're really hard to fight, but he also, but they also say, yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Iraqi from America. And so, um, so, but they all, they also say, oh, well, if, if we got the order, we'd take Mosul, um, you know, we'd do it, but we haven't got the order yet. Um, you know, the, the, well, Maliki at the time, he, you know, they just, they hadn't got the order. They weren't going to take Mosul. So they were just waiting for, for orders. So the, the way a lot of this works is, um, the orders that they get. So when are they, are they actually going to take a city or not? Or are they just going to leave them to do, to do their own thing? Are they going to, are they going to, um, you know, drop supplies and then accidentally drop them in ISIS territory? Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of strategy going on on the upper levels that the, the lower levels aren't aware of, um, or just you know don't necessarily know the, the the hidden meaning behind. So, so I mean Mosul probably could have been attacked you know a year ago, two years ago, but it's just been you know for whatever reason it wasn't the right time, and that's how the, that's how these guys on the ground see it. Well, it wasn't the right time a year or two years ago because uh, there was still some hope in the, in the West. Uh, with uh, the U.S. and the Saudis and stuff, that um, that ISIS could be, you know, used as a proxy army to overthrow and dis, you know defeat mm-hmm. the Syrian army and overthrow Assad. Exactly. But uh, since since Syria, since Russia has now entered the French stuff, they've had to change uh, to Plan B or whatever, and Plan B involves them uh, saving some face. Mm-hmm. Instead of getting all of Syria, instead of getting you know overthrowing Assad and taking the whole country effectively with their jihadis, <clears throat> they now have to uh, uh, grab uh, whatever they can get, you know. And I think that was the motivation behind the uh, de- decision to mm-hmm. uh, go from Mosul because uh, you know, I mean, they risk they don't do anything. They risk having their jihadi army defeated and uh, basically Syria being restored to all of Syria being restored to to the Syrian government, which. Which would just be a, much, a monumental failure in terms of and a complete waste uh, from their point of view, and not that they care about the waste of or the, the massive death toll and stuff, but just that they they would have achieved nothing uh, of, of their initial objective. Right, and and this uh, <laughs> this allied attack on Mosul seems to accomplish a couple of things. Uh, one is, and, and Trump actually got this correct, uh, the warning to Mosul happened months in advance. Uh, so all the jihadi, uh, you know, ISIS leaders had all this time to, to basically leave. Um, but it also gave an opportunity for a lot of the fighters there to leave as well and to enter Syria and maybe reinforce the efforts that are happening elsewhere. And the other mm-hmm. thing is, uh, you know, o- Obama is clearly seen any way you look at it as a huge failure uh, in the fight against terror and uh, so-called and he, you know, this was this was like his little, uh, his little kind of uh, look what I just did uh, mm. in, in in Iraq. See, I'm 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 fighting I'm fighting terror too, not not just Putin. And um, it's it's so obvious a, a, a kind of a a um, a band aid to his uh, to his failures in the Middle East. Uh, you know, we can't even. It's not even a success, as as you pointed out earlier. Uh, Joe, over a thousand civilians uh, are estimated to have been killed in Mosul in, in recent weeks. In the last, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, it's it's a spectacular failure, and uh, like we were saying a little earlier, uh, um, Kerry has made this pathetic uh, last ditch effort to to uh, keep the U.S.'s hands inside of the actions in Syria, and uh, 
that is is going nowhere fast, as many people have observed. Yep. Yep, yep. Well, do we want to move on to another topic? Yeah, what about Castro? Oh, yes. Castro was about his ashes spread around his around the beginning of the place where his revolution started. Yes, interred. 50 years they ago. They weren't spread, I don't think. Oh, they interred. They, they of course were, were... The funeral took place today in Santiago. They weren't... They weren't uh, shared out among, amongst the population and through communist That style. would have been the communist thing to do. A little bit each. One ash each. No. One ash each. Yes. <clears throat> Today ends nine days of mourning officially in Cuba. And the end of Fidel Castro and his revolution. And the end of the revolution, really, because Cuba henceforth has already started down the road of effectively normalizing relations with the U.S., which means accepting you can't have everything your way and accepting to go into the international system. They'll do it on their own terms, of course, but, um, yeah, it's the end of an era. Well, so... And what, and what about the, uh, what about the, 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 the media reaction to it? Western media reaction? Well, Donald Trump in true ignorant American style, uh, hailed his death, jumped on his grave, effectively, hailed at the end of a dictatorship, which is rich, given that Cuba's dire state for 50 years was because it stuck to its certain principles in the face of living under the boot of arguably American corporate fascism for half a century. Mm-hmm. He's either totally ignorant of that or, of course, he's not, he's not I'm not even going to be too harsh on him. He's, it's ignorance. It's, it's not even, it's not even malicious. It's, it's part of the course, really, because most Americans have been brought up on two generations worth of lies about Cuba. Yeah, but the interesting thing is that Trump I mean, took that position on things later and good riddance. Well, uh, it was good because he appealed to his base. Well, it appealed to his base, yeah, of course. So he was just falling in, in on, into party, uh, along political lines that are effectively mm. political uh, ideology lines. But um, it's interesting that Obama didn't say the same thing. Um, and I'm sure Hillary had been president elect at this point, she wouldn't have said that he was a dictator. So it was, uh, it was the Democrat agenda of the past, and under Obama over the past year that uh, mm. this reconciliation happened with, with Cuba and with Cuba was presented, uh, att- they attempted to present Cuba uh, or to undo the impression that uh, Cuba has had, that they have presented of Cuba over the past, you know, forever uh, as this uh, communist hellhole. And they tried to kind of, you know, reconcile with them and etc. So it's a uh, it's interesting. I suppose it's you know ideologically, from from a political ideology point of view, it's it's, it's in keeping with the uh, with the left. You know, I suppose the left in the U.S. The Democrats wouldn't be hard on a communist state as the supposed Republicans on the right and stuff. But um, 
but none of it really speaks to what. Well, all of these people kissed Gaddafi's butt before they had him executed. He was not, I mean, but, but he was it doesn't not. matter what they say publicly, mm. you know. No, but it's just interesting what they say publicly. Right, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, that speaks to what uh, really, um, what the reality of Castro's Cuba was. Of course, it's very popular these days and particularly in the past few months um, since the, the US presidential elections and the kind of um, the, the divide that that has exposed and more recently the, the kind of hot topic of um, progressive liberals and um, and the, the, the kickback against those, uh, uh, those kind of snowflakes who are crying over uh, Hillary not winning the presidential election and what those people, um, what they represent, what their view is, how some people have actually tied it with a kind of Marxist, communist <clears throat> kind of uh, um, worldview, effectively, that these snowflakes, these liberal snowflakes, Hillary supporting snowflakes, are just these more or less polluted people who are, unbeknownst to themselves, are uh, in the grip of a, of a Marxist slash pseudo communist kind of ideology. Um, and So it's kind of it's kind of uh, the timing is really interesting. It, well, it's interesting. It's like, but what that's what point is that there have been certain people who have come out uh, quite hard, or even more uh, harder against hmm. uh, Castro and come down on Castro and everything that he stood for in his communist, uh, his kind of revolution and Cuba and, and everything uh, because of that, you know, because it fit in with this newfound awareness and among certain sectors of uh, right. of, of the evils. Of communism and what it actually, what it actually pertains, yeah, the, and, and demonizing also anybody who might be uh, communist, who might have you know, be, be communist supporter, or by extension socialist, or anybody of that lefty kind of stripe, gets effectively uh, dumped into right. this category of a Marxist, na Marxist, Nazi, fascist. Castro, communist, nihilistic, atheistic, nut job. Nazi and communist. Nazi and communist, yeah, because <laughs> well, Nazism was effectively national socialism, right? So socialism right, was all the same. Yeah. And no, I, for me, I keep these two conversations separate. They're not really the same thing. Um, I wouldn't get too hung up on the communist prefix of Cuba under Castro, because really, by the time the revolution quieted down, the communist stuff like, uh, okay, at one point, it, it, it was nuts. I mean, they knew it was nuts. They, they admitted themselves in retrospect that some of the things were crazy. So Fidel puts Che Guevara in charge of the finances of the country. And Che says, right, we're doing away with money. <laughs> no more cash. And they, they tried to implement something where it was, everything was going to be bartered uh, based on that. So, and, and indexing of prices and adjusting the values and so it didn't work. Of course it didn't work. So they just ditched it quickly. And they ditched a lot of things like that. Mm. Um, so in the end, what you're left with, like it's, today is, is China communist. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's China. It's actually being nationalist. If you want to put an ism on it, it's being nationalist. It's being independent. Um, you know, sticking two fingers up to the globalists. Right? Mm. It's all about the globalists, you know? Um, 
So I wouldn't get hung up on Cuba being communist more than it is being independent. But it was communist. What does that mean? What 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 was it about it that was communist? Well, the the, the ideology was communist, where basically yeah. you know it was uh, the whole problem of equality of equality of outcome. Everybody had to be equal. And they did it pretty well, private. given the circumstances. I mean, yeah. the, their largest natural trading partner, partner, of course, would have been the U.S. And it still was the U.S. And given the scant resources available to them, like they've no, no very little of their own resources, um, yeah. they nevertheless achieved remarkable outcomes. Mm. Despite, I mean, they were effectively under the kind of sanctions Iran was under briefly. But for 50 years. Well, the thing is, there's one, there's one thing that was highlighted among all the bad things that were being said about Castro <clears throat> by uh, this guy, Jordan Peterson, the professor at the University of Toronto, who's in the spotlight right now for <coughs> taking a stand against the, um, the gender, gendery gender people, people with, with, without genders, with genders, or, you know, who may or may not have a gender, gender binary, gender fluid, gender bender, gender queers, whatever. I can't, there's too many terms, sorry. Um, those people, he's taken a stand against those people. And he actually, in, in an interview recently, um, kind of was happy uh, about, not that he was happy necessarily, I don't know if he was happy about the death of Castro, but he uh, was using it as, a, as an example of this kind of uh, uh, neoliberal, Marxist, communist ridiculous ideology that's just nihilistic and ridiculous and stupid and he one example he gave was that um that was attributed to castro slash his government at the time in in the maybe sometime in the 60s maybe or late mm -hmm. 50s or 60s maybe 60s, early 60s yeah. that that he uh that the people the political prisoners that were slated for execution were drained of their blood uh before they were executed all of their blood, more or less, seven seven pints, and um, and then that that blood was sold to Vietnam for fifty dollars a pint. Uh, this this is verified now, isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, it's verified by some people who were diehard anti-Castroists, you know, right. and who supposedly lived there. And it was it's it's it was reported, you know, by uh, a kind of there's this kind of you. you uh, so American organization, American countries organization, I can't remember the actual name for it, it's like UN for uh, Latin American countries and, and, and the US is is a part of it as well and they have a rotating kind of president and stuff and they're there to investigate uh, human rights abuses. The OAS. In different yeah. countries. OAS, there you go. Uh, so they... Uh, the OAS said this. The OAS. Or gave us some... Power. The OAS, yeah. It was in one of the reports around right. that time. Uh, of course, you know, I mean, at the at the time, at the times that we're in it, in terms of Cold War propaganda and all that kind of stuff, hysterical Cold War propaganda, uh, of which there was an awful lot, a lot of it proven to be untrue. It's, it's a very dubious claim, uh, even from a practical, logical point of view. Of course, there were millions, there were millions of Cubans who, if who all were, if all of them were, or a majority of them were in favour of the glorious uh, Cuban Revolution, surely they would be in a much easier tap for uh, blood will have given a pint of their blood willingly, each of them, and you'd have millions of pints of blood then to send to uh, Vietnam and sell to Vietnam. Well, I think, I think that was actually... Take it from the... Go ahead. I think that was actually part of where this might have come from because um, I'll have to look into it more, but I'm pretty sure I found something that there, there either was or still is, I'm not sure about that, 
um, a policy, a, a mandatory uh, blood donation policy in Cuba. So like 100% of, of citizens in Cuba have to donate blood. And right. so I think that might, might be where this comes from because naturally if everyone donates blood, then prisoners slated for execution will have to donate blood. And mm. so I don't know, you know, I, I tried to look into it too and I found that report, uh, you know, from the, it was something like, you know, the human rights um, group associated with the o, with the OAS, OAS and how they said this. Mm-hmm. But um, but uh, so I don't. It's hard to find out what the actual um, details were. You know where exactly this information come from and what the, what the exact circumstances were. So it might even it might even be true that um, that that blood was taken from these prisoners and and sold because that's what happens to everyone in Cuba or at least did. So just that might add some perspective. Yeah, but this is also in the context of. I mean, one of the the legacies of, of Castro's Cuba is the kind of uh, the medical work that uh, Cuban doctors and that was organised by the Cuban, Cuban government did overseas, particularly in Africa mm-hmm. and different countries. Uh, kind of hu- actual humanitarian work, you know, which is is on the record and it's official and is you know was actually a very good thing, you know, in terms of going to African countries and providing medical, uh, providing hospitals and. Um, medical care to people who didn't have any. Uh, they absolutely did do that, you know, so you'd have to maybe put the blood donation thing in the context of that as well, you know. They also had an excess of warriors, guerrillas. We can argue about how deluded they were or not, but the fact is Cuban revolutionaries, obviously Che went on to Bolivia. His, his plan was to carry on the revolution across Latin America. That failed. He died probably in the hands of the CIA. But there were others then who, Che also went to Southern Africa, but after he had been and gone in Southern Africa, then there were others into the 70s and 80s, maybe not 80s, but 70s, I think. And, uh, you know, we can sit here and judge whether or not that was a good thing that Cuban revolutionaries were involved in liberating Angola, involved in bringing the ANC to power and Mandela and in other places in Southern Africa. But the fact is they themselves over there have good memories of it. They they associated with their liberation movement against the colonial occupation of the continent by the European powers. Show mm-hmm. so, context important, yeah. you know. Another little bit, this is, let's just go with, I guess let's go with the most horrific version of this bloodletting thing and assume it's true. Okay, that went on in Cuba, let's say. I wonder what Peterson or anyone else would have to say about the fact that in the state of Arkansas under Bill and Hillary Clinton, um, prisoners were not forced to, but enticed to give blood. You know, they get like a dollar or so, a couple of dollars. It'd be a means of income. And their blood would be uh, just approved, not vetted, checked, tested, and then sold on the market uh, usually outside the U.S. because um, someone in the U.S. obviously knew it was dodgy. It was sold to Canada and something like 8,000 people contracted hepatitis, among other horribles, in Canada in the 1980s. And that's directly linked back to dodgy blood from prisoners in the state of Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, you can highlight anyone horrible over another, but the mote in your eye will prevent you from realizing the horrors in your own backyard, you know? Mm-hmm. 
and this is this comes back to the Western centric, the Eurocentrism of yeah. Many Westerners I, or all Westerners, I'm not sure which. I think I have a problem with um, you know with someone pointing out the ridiculousness of uh, Marxism or communism uh, and how it doesn't work and how it hasn't worked. Uh, because that's true, you know. But then to, you know, you can't just apply too broad a brush to every single situation, to every group that is, and uh, you know, that you might be able to, that don't necessarily identify themselves as Marx, Marxists or communists or anything like that. But you, if you can, if you can ferret out some um, evidence or some uh, some part of their ideology or belief system that is in some way kind of uh, neoliberal in that way, uh, kind of. Um, uh, as Peterson, that guy I was talking about, uh, called it, uh, the, these are the kind of people who weaponize compassion. Uh, if you can ferret out something out about them, then suddenly they're uh, they're to be thrown into the you know atheistic, nihilistic, uh, uh, bloodthirsty, world destroying uh, Marxist types. It's, it's just too too much of a generalization. You know, you have to look at each specific situation and each each particular person or each particular leader. You know. You can't just basically hold up Stalin, for example, or Mao or Hitler and then start calling everybody those names, basically, and say that's where you're going. You, know, you have to look at each specific situation and each, each person be a member of the public or uh, or a leader of a country or whatever and what they mm. actually mm-hmm. talk to it. And I mean, the thing is that where this gets complicated is that you know, this is something that this ideology of... of, of um, uh, as he called it, weaponizing compassion and uh, uh, trying to impose uh, equality on absolutely everyone and demanding that there is an equality of outcome from everyone and all minorities must be raised up and and, and given uh, special treatment and stuff. Um, That idea, that policy obviously has been uh, in the modern age in the past uh, 10 or 15 or 20 years has been the, the the proponents or the main uh, advocates for that policy have been have come from uh, the USA. They're in the USA. Um, it's for example Samantha Power is one of them. Uh, UN ambassador under uh, under Obama, and there are many people in Obama's government, and there are many think tanks who all seem to push that. But then the question is, do, are they pushing it as a as a conscious ideology, or are they doing it as a uh, covertly, is it? Do we get into the deep, dark kind of like conspiratorial realms of of people attempting to um, use a certain use this, these ideologies, these opposing ideologies, and push push one or push the other uh, in an effort to control as much of the, the world as possible? Because um, we were, I mean, the idea of uh, of revolution, for example, is um, uh, it's very much a, an idea that's associated with that leftist, Marxist, communist uh, group. And, for example, Trotsky has had the idea of a permanent revolution, that they have to have revolutions in every country. Well, under, between Bush and Obama, you had revolutions that were inspired or had a U.S. hand in them. Uh, many, many, many revolutions in, in different places around the world. The, the color, the color revolutions in Eastern Europe, the Arab Spring revolutions, all of those had a U.S. hand to one extent or another in them, and yet they all fit the the profile for a Trotskyist uh, revolution, uh, permanent revolution in many countries to to shake up the country. You know, 
And I mean, there's, I mean, it's very strong. That ideology obviously is very strong in in the USA and even domestically in the USA. I mean, there's, and this is where it would you get into very dangerous waters of uh, of talking about uh, uh, that book, the controversy of Zion, where this idea of uh, um, this ideology of Trotsky and Lenin is a ruse or a front that was being used by certain groups in power uh, to to control the world, to stir up revolutions in countries so you can open them up for exploitation and you can you know, basically increase your power by going in and wrecking a country through through an inspired phony revolution, you know, whip up the, the population into overthrowing a government so you can install your own government. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's a guy, a kind of... He's he's kind of seen as the uh, as the as the father of kind of American community community organization or social activism. Uh, a guy called Saul Alinsky, mm-hmm. um, and he died in nineteen seventy two. He was born in nineteen oh nine. But he uh, he I mean, if you read some of the stuff, he wrote a book. One of his no- most noted uh, books is called Rules for Radicals. To give you an idea for. Of, of what he was all about, and it was he was about empowering the underclass and the black people and all this kind of stuff. And he was a uh, uh, he was born in Chicago, but he, he he's a, a Russian Jewish uh, immigrant parents, you know. Um, so he, if you look him up, uh, Saul Alinsky uh, on Wikipedia, he's he's an interesting character in the sense that he, I mean, you see basically at the heart of American capitalism. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, he's he's whipping, he's he's pushing and has access and has a great effect, has a a lot of influence on American society uh, along the lines of what is effectively communist uh, social revolution. Well, he's he's Hillary Clinton's mentor and Barack Obama. Oh, right, and he's Hillary Clinton's mentor, yeah. So, I mean, it's the point about this is it's not so black and white. Yeah, you can stand up and say this ideology is nihilistic and stupid and it destroys all, all proper, you know, normal rational values that any human being would have. It starts bringing in gender pronouns and other kin and all this, the ridiculous extremes you can go to. And, and you can say that that's wrong and, and ridiculous, but you can't be so, so easily just separated between, go back to kind of Cold War, uh, kind of black and white divides of, you know, uh, commie versus capitalist. I mean, uh, Russia isn't communist anymore, so who are you going to blame? Uh, well, suddenly you find you have to blame yourself or blame the people in your own country, and then you say, well, where did it actually come from? And was there any clear div- divide between these two ideologies to begin with, or have they always been used by the same little elite or little clique in power to just switch it up every now and again to keep people divided and so that they can go around the world kind of uh, picking whichever ideology they they that fit best with their agenda for any particular country, for their foreign policy or for their domestic policy. You know, well, so Joe, it gets Joe. a bit more nuanced when you when you mm-hmm. really look at it. You know? Yeah, I just wanted to say that you know you you opened it up with the question basically: How conscious is this effort on the part of the people who are implementing the policies, who are the the movers and shakers involved here? And uh, you know, it it just seems as though there are you you have two different types. For the most part, you have the Samantha Powers who fervently believe, who are completely identified with their kind of uh, ideological, emotionally driven stance, uh, you know, 
exceptional USA, we must import democracy, we are the humanitarians. And then, like a few weeks ago, we, we had this uh, piece that included a 60 Minutes interview with George Soros, who said that he didn't give a hoot about, uh, about social um, uh, progress, even though all of his organizations and funding are ostensibly uh, in the interest of of helping nations to to be democratic. So, you know, you have guys like that who are completely conscious of, of the tool of ideology, the tool of humanitarianism, the tool of uh, social justice and, and raising people up. And, and they kind of work in tandem with the Samantha Powers of the world who, who don't even realize how they are um, a part of the very thing that they claim to be fighting against, that they are the, the very forces uh, involved in making things worse objectively uh, for people. So, right. Uh, there's a quote from um, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis, strangely enough, um, the author, who uh, about that I think defines really well um, what what the problem is here. I mean, with for example, the Samantha Powers, the the people who weaponize compassion, and it's uh, here's the quote is of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omni omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time likelier to make a hell of earth. This very kindness stings with intolerable insult to be cured against one's will and cured of states which, may, which we may not regard as disease is to be put on a level of those who have not yet reached the age of reason or those who never will, to be classed with infants, imbeciles and domestic animals. Um, so that's, that's basically Samantha Power mm -hmm. and the people that she represents. I mean, so she is convinced, I'm pretty sure, of, of, of her human, good humanitarian intent. But an awful lot of destruction can be, uh, can be done um, under, under that ideology on someone who blindly believes in, her own, in their own um, compassion and desire to cure the world, but who, in fact, uh, have no real compassion at all and are pathological behind it, but have an ideology to cover up the fact that they have no, have no conscience. Mm-hmm. Enter Donald Trump. They're, they're one side of the same coin. The same coin is on the one side it says the West is the best so we must fear the rest. Keep them back. Keep them contained before they come at us. Keep them down because we're top. And the other side of the coin is the compassionate one. The rest is not as good as the, the West which is the best so therefore we must raise them to our level. Mm -hmm. And we will intervene until they are raised you know if we have to tear the whole planet apart to do so, we will do it. And both seem to work together, sometimes one at the same time and the same person, sometimes one at the same time and the same organization because each side of the coin appeals yeah. to one or the other. In the end, though, it produces this sort of rule by schizoids. Yeah. You know? The people who condemn uh, communism and Marxism 
and things that happened, you know, on, on, under Mao and stuff. Um, they, while they're, the problem here is while they're accurate, while they're, they're correct in what they say, because people would say, look, that was a horrible situation. Look at the gulags. Look at the concentration camps. It's horrible. Look what this ideology produced. Yes, but if you go back to a point where people came up with Marx, for example, he came up with the ideology. He may have been a nut job, whatever, uh, but he came up with an ideology that was that stood in stark contrast and was a reaction to it at the level that people understood it and the level that it was parlayed down to the people who understood it. It took hold amongst many people. Why? Because there was the opposite, right, that was already in existence and could be held up as something that you did not want. And what was that? It was... British imperialism. It was, it was the industrial revolution. It was, you know, and all of the people that were suffering in one way or another under, under those, uh, under that imperialist doctrine all around the world were more easily or would have more quickly and did more quickly gravitate towards some form of communist, to whatever extent they understood it or was explained to them, some form of communist ideology because of the excesses of capitalism. But today people are going to say, that you know, capitalism must be wonderful because uh, communism was so evil. When in fact, communism was adhered to because of the excesses of capitalism in the past. Capitalism, using that in a loose term, I mean, I'm using that as a and in a loose way to to incorporate all of the excesses of, uh, for example, the the British Empire and other empires on uh, indigenous peoples around the world. So you can't have it kind of. Uh, all, all your own way type of thing, you know, you have to, uh, and I mean, what's the difference between, um, you know, in essence, what's the difference between uh, the communist gulags or, 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 or whatever else you want to cite about kind of leftist communist ideologies and what has been done mm-hmm. uh, over the past 30 or 40 years by America mm-hmm. as a capitalist nation. It has slaughtered, you know, Peterson talks about Here's 60 million people. Peterson talks about 60 million people dead in the, in the Soviet gulags from uh, Lenin to the end of Stalin. So 40 years or something. Uh, you could take 40 years from, say, the end of the Second World War or just after it until uh, 1990 and look at the evidence presented by, for example, certain CIA uh, operatives or CIA agents who were working through most of that period who have given figures of 6, 10, 15, 20 million people killed by US imperialism and British imperialism are over the same period of time. So when both, when two ideologies, whatever, whatever they claim to do, ultimately end up slaughtering people, how are you going to take a strong stand for one or the other? Except that you happen to live well enough under one ideology, which may be the only thing in capitalism's favor in that we live in the West, in the capitalist West, and we don't have to work in mines under, you know, uh, indentured servitude for the rest of our lives or or anything else you can describe about more authoritarian policies, you know. But if you're going to take a more philosophical approach and stand back and look at it and get out of your own little, I'm I'm all right in my life, therefore my ideology must be good. Look at the ideology on a broad scale and what it has done over the course of history. It's not so easy to draw a clear line of distinction between the two and say one is black and one is white. Yeah. 
it's 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 time to move beyond it. Um, it's just funny. I know I know what you mean, Joe. We're talking in shorthand by calling capitalism an ideology, which in in the broader sweep of history is is silly. No offense. What I mean by that is, um, a thousand years ago, China, for example, had a banking system, a paper currency, foreign exchange reserves, um, complex trading system, complex manufacturing system, um, some merchants, a merchant class, uh, state class, a sort of religious classes, but nowhere near as powerful in the West. In the West, and you see what I'm getting at: capitalism, as we would generally talk about it, existed then. You know, wasn't an ideology shoved on anyone who wasn't there. patched together as an ideology to offer a counter narrative to communism. Um. So yeah, the the world the world works a certain way. There are some objective rules to how trade works, to how finance works, and there's no ism that needs to be exclusively in charge of how that works. It, it can be deduced, worked out, and, and rational people do. Whenever there is a revolution of any kind in any given part of the world, it eventually calms down because either... It's usually bad. bad. It's usually atrocious to begin with, but either the people who instigated it or the successors start to learn some of the facts of life, how things actually work as opposed to the ideology told them how it right. worked, and then they begin to adapt <clears throat> to global reality. Right. So the main problem is ideologies then. People yes, strong, ideology is strong fixations on yes. ideologies. And Putin gave a speech recently. I've only just glanced at it, but he the, the earmark, the hallmark of it was that given that next year is the anniversary of the centenary of 1917, he just gave a warning that, you know, uh, can be no that all to ideologies or of the past. He was congratulating United Russia the part of the one parliamentary election recently, and he was saying it's good that we're united as a people. But let's take note of the fact that we're not united behind any crazy ideology, any specific ideology. or any specific one. Yeah, he basically highlighted just nationalism, the Russian people as a as a as a united people. Yeah, and and that's you don't need an ideology other than uh, us together as a people. As a as a discrete kind of eth- although Russia is kind of to a certain extent multi ethnic, but there's there's um, I think the majority of people are would be classified as kind of like Slavic or white Russians basically, and you know them together as a people under in one nation working together to make the the nation as defined by the borders of the nation as good as it can possibly be with benefits for every you know that everybody you know it's a good society basically where. You know, there's no serious issues where it's not falling apart, where it's not, you know, there's not mass suffering is, is the ideology. It's mm-hmm. a very basic, simple ideology of just let's all work as uh, to the best of our ability to make our lives as good as they can be in every way. Mm-hmm. You know, employment, socially, families, communities, everything, just very basic things. Who needs another ideology than that other than the psychos who want to divide everybody and destroy that kind of basic human ideology? That should unite everybody. That does unite all normal human beings who just want to live relatively peaceably, you know, allowing for, you know, the normal kind of problems of human interactions and stuff, but sorting them out. That's the point of human existence is to work through your problems. Yes, there's suffering. It's unavoidable. You got to deal with it, but let's make the best of a bad situation. What's wrong with that as an ideology? What do we call it? 
let's make the best of bad situation. Ism. <laughs> Ism. Well, on that we note. We don't need to call it anything. No, we don't. Um, humanity. Humanity. Humanitarian values and, and no, living. No, because then. No humanitarianism. <laughs> They say you're you're one of them. They've already cornered the market and all the all the words. You know. Yeah, they call you an atheist and a humanitarian, and some of the globalists are humanitarianists, and you get into into pigeonholing people and yeah. then shut them down, and everybody backs into their own camps, and you're at war, you know, which is what what the, somebody wants. Right. Anyway, on well, that point, Alan. On that point, yeah, I I thought we'd talk a little bit about. Um, we've now had a little bit of time since the election to. Uh, see objectively what uh, what Trump has been doing in, in his um, in his appointments. He's Hitler. Hitler. <laughs> he's also been uh, on the phone. Uh, he's he's pretty much hit the ground running. Uh, he's spoken to Putin. Um, he's he's praised Duterte. Uh, yeah, he's had Duterte, uh, the the president of uh, or the prime minister of uh, of Taiwan. Uh, he's been reaching out uh, globally. Um, and, uh, of course the media in the West has been poo-pooing his, his efforts and saying, well, this isn't, this isn't quite, uh, the, the, the way it's done. It's, it's, it's undiplomatic. How can you bring, uh, Ivanka Trump with you to a meeting to the prime minister of, uh, Japan? And, uh, so he, he's definitely, uh, demonstrating that he's got his own style. Um, uh, he is following through on appointments that are consistent with a lot of, uh, a lot of the things that he's spoken of on his campaign trail. Um, <clears throat> I think it's Jeff Sessions, uh, one of the one of the senators who's in charge of one of these committees, who has been very rigorous about immigration. So, uh, you know, like there's another example of how he he really he really does have some convictions about immigration. It's not all rhetoric, even if the goal to build a wall is uh, unrealistic. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a, an excellent commentary on, on one of the articles recently, uh, in one of our SOT articles about, um, Trump's, uh, conversation with the president of, of Taiwan and how China must be in a kind of an uproar, uh, because of this kind of, uh, independence, um, kind of tension between Taiwan and China. And, uh, and the comment was no. Uh, Trump, Trump is uh, Trump is is just kind of leveraging his influence there in Taiwan, of course. Uh, and it has it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, he he gets it and China gets it that it has everything to do with uh, with business and influence and nothing to do with wanting to make war or uh, or, right. or or influencing a, a nation in in this kind of a color revolution sort of a way. Well, and that's what that was Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy, and he basically ended his article by saying everyone chill out. It's like adults have this handled mm-hmm. and they, they know what they're mm-hmm. doing. They're not stupid. It's like that, to think yeah, that, I mean, that China would like, you know, get the nukes out because Trump took right. a call from the president of Taiwan is ridiculous. Well, Taiwan's it. Taiwan sitting there as, a, as an obvious lever leverage mm-hmm. for the U.S. against China, and in fact, it would it points out the fact that uh, that the U.S. is in a bad position, is in a position of weakness uh, to, uh, vis-a-vis China. That it would feel the need to go and say, "Okay, let's talk to Taiwan, so we can then negotiate with China. At least have Taiwan to negotiate with China over. I.e., let's talk to them, 
uh, pretend, look like we might establish some relations with them and, you know, that'll piss China off a bit. And then we'll go to China and say, well, if you were to do this, we might stop taking calls from the Taiwanese Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just basic kind of politicking, you know. Yes. Um, but of course, the, the media, the Western, the media in the US can't, uh, it's just looking for anything. They're so, they're so asinine uh, in their kind of anti-Trump, Trump the fascist kind of uh, agenda that no matter what he does, they're just going to j- jump on everything like an, like a bunch of idiots and say, ooh, look what he's doing there without thinking about it at all, just using it to try and beat, you know, use it as a stick to beat him with when, it, when it's not even, that's not even what it is, you know? Uh, I mean, only in America could Trump be actually picked as a as a kind of like a right-wing Hitler-type fascist or whatever, you know, only in a mollycoddled kind of country like America, and particularly amongst the most mollycoddled kind of neoliberal demographic in the U.S. could could Trump be presented in that way? Those people have no idea what life is really like. Trump is a moderate by any standards. He's as moderate as Hillary Clinton. He's probably more moderate than Hillary Clinton uh, across the board. Hillary Clinton just did a good job of talking up the humanitarianism, humanitarianism and, and, and you know open society and liberal values and stuff. She was nothing like that. Hillary was far more of a fascist than Trump ever could or would be because Trump is a, is a practical person who is, his only ideology appears to be business, which makes him politically very moderate in terms of what he would actually do and not do. An extremist is the one who, who, um, wants who to reshape the world and with, their image. Yeah, and who finances a bunch of jihadi nut jobs uh, with the help of Saudi Arabia and Qatar to invade a country and overthrow the government and kill 400,000 people. That's a freaking fascist extremist, and that was Obama and Hillary. And that's precisely the irony of, of what we've been seeing here for the past year. Uh, there's no one who's more fascist than uh, than Hillary and, and Obama, uh, but they have they have worn the mask of progressivism so expertly. Well, not Hillary. Uh, people see right through it. Uh, but this was this was the reason why Obama was was voted in to begin with uh, among many people in the U.S. And uh, you know people confuse or mistake Trump's um, emotional kind of uh, non politically correct statements with with something else entirely. Um, so it, it's a it's a huge mistake to think that he he is this this monster that everyone has been claiming him to be. Um, right, and when I use the term fascist, I, what I mean by fascist is I just have to dispense with all actual meanings. If there is even meanings for these things, I should define them myself. A fascist is just a nutjob, totalitarian, power-hungry, power-mad mass murderer who doesn't give a shit about anybody and will kill anybody and everybody to get their way. Mm-hmm. That's Hillary. Uh, that's pretty much Obama as he was for the public, for the front man. But then, you know, so the question over the Trump issue is, Obviously, there's a there's a kind of deep state or whatever, as many people, even the mainstream media, have talked about in the U.S. and probably in a lot of a lot of different Western governments. There's a deep state that is running the country, and they're all a bunch of they're all the the mad the nut job power crazy uh, mass murderers. Uh, the the question then becomes, and they're the ones who run the country, despite what, regardless of the administration that's in 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 the White House. And the question with Trump then is, to what extent can, to what extent can he Kind of rein those people in, or reduce their influence to a, maybe a small degree. Well, it's a good because question. Forced to, because, yeah. You know, because um, he might. Go ahead, Neil. Go on. I, 
Alan, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, along the lines of uh, Trump's uh, being against the war in Syria and, and not knowing who uh, our friends are, who our enemies are, uh, one of his appointees is, um, I forget his name, but he, he was a general. And, Mattis, uh, Mattis. Mattis, yeah. yes. Uh, he's come out, I mean, <laughs> when he was in um, uh, one of the uh, these uh, these groups, he, he he basically came out a few years ago when he was in government and, and wrinkled a lot of people who were above him by saying that, so this whole policy that we're working on is, is an attempt to bring in the Salafist uh, or jihadi or, or radical uh, Islamic element into Syria. And this is Michael Flynn. Oh, that was Flynn? Yeah. That's uh, a different general, yeah. He's, he's this. Yeah. But Mike, I'm confusing my but, generals. But Mattis, Mad Dog Mattis, who's uh, uh, up for Secretary of Defense, he actually called uh, Israel apartheid. Mm-hmm. Right. Flynn is a is, uh, national security advisor, no? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that's who I mean. So uh, so Flynn, and, and basically Flynn is also kind of not, um, not rapidly uh, Russophobic. Uh, so, oh know. well, worse than that, Elan, they're they're casting him as a Russian agent. Yeah. <laughs> He's not just not not a Russophobe. They're saying he, the guy is Russian. He's the one who went to an R, went to an RT uh, convention or something. Flynn, and he right? sat right next to Putin. Right. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. And this is the example of uh, the sick black and white thinking. If if you're not rapidly Russophobic, uh, you must be. A Kremlin agent. Well, Go ahead, Neil. These are indicators that Trump is shaking things up. I mean, a lot of people are, you know, oh, God, he's not seriously considering that person for that job. But among the ones he has considered for some of the jobs, it is a sign that, you know, he means he means business. He's being practical about things. Um, Mattis, you pointed out, Joe, that the Secretary of Defense, you were like, when's the last time a Secretary of Defense was not a, type, a RAND-type bureaucrat in a suit, but an actual Marine Corps ex-general mm. who was only three years ago retired from mm. active duty as commander of forces in Afghanistan. Yeah, well, there haven't been, I haven't been a lot of them. You go back to Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld wasn't exactly a military man. Like, I mean, these were... Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld, McNamara, Ash Carter, yeah. Gates, Ash, they were all suits. Ash Carter was a mamby-pamby kind of admiral, you know, and the poop tech, but uh, he wasn't much. I think he was. Oh, Secretary of Defense during the 80s, Reagan. Yeah, Dick Cheney. Right. So I mean, these are all wannabe generals in their suits. You know, political politicians who who, who fancy themselves as kind of armchair generals. And I mean, it makes far more sense if you're going to have the secretary, secretary of the, head, the head of the Pentagon should be a guy who has spent in the, the last forty years over on the ground in countries. You know, regardless of what you're going to do, what you know, whether or not you're going to do. I mean, basically, it it argues or it it has much more. Uh, chance of being in line a, with reality, a, a more yeah, more yes. moderate and, and reasonable and in line reality military policy from one of those guys than w- from someone who spent their life in an armchair, kind of uh, moving little toy soldiers on a, on a map. You know. Question for the Americans: That's you guys and anyone listening. Um, has anyone does anyone remember an incumbent, an elected? Jesus, what, what, what's the status now of Trump? He's president-select? President-elect. President-elect, excuse me. President-elect. When's the last time, has a president-elect ever done a victory tour immediately after being elected? 
because she's going around giving the same rallies again. I'm like, I don't remember that happening with Obama. I don't. Is it? Is that breaking protocol too? I don't know if it's breaking protocol, but it is. Uh, I I don't remember any president doing what uh, what Trump is is doing now in the form of I, solidifying I think, I his base. Pretty, and he actually right, at his pretty remarkable at his first post, you know, thank on on his first uh, rally in this thank you tour, he explicitly said, "We're the United States is no longer going to be engaged in regime in regime change around the world." Right. And, right. and if you remember just earlier this, was it earlier this year or was it late last year when it was, I think it was Jen Psaki or one of them, like her, maybe Marie Harf or something who, who would, was answering the question about, um, about coups. Right. Uh, and I think it was in the state department. Mm-hmm. She said, Oh, the unit, the United States doesn't ha- never had a policy of, of, you know, interfering with other countries and, and a changing their government. policy of not interfering. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And here's Trump just saying it. Hi, I'm Donald Trump, and we're stopping that long-standing policy. <laughs> and I approve this message. It's great. Now, well, it seems to be a pretty smart move to do that. I mean, if other presidents haven't done that because they thought, okay, done deal, I mean, I'm just going to wait until well, inauguration. But Trump, the fact that he is doing that, going around giving kind of thank you rallies and reiterating his point is kind of as if to say, listen, I'm kind of serious about this, and I'm, I'm going to try and keep the population and the electorate on my side, and I'm going... By, just simply by going around doing that, I'm going to be sending a message to people in Washington type thing who might be against me that I'm I'm, I'm serious about it. I'm leveraging this popular support mm. that I got from the American people. I'm going to keep leveraging that. I'm not just going to say, okay, now I won the won the race mm. and, I'm, and I got the prize. Forget the people. I'm in. I'm in the. Try, it's also it's saying try to manipulate me if you want, but I'm going out here and I'm more popular than ever. The yeah. rallies. I saw some of them. I mean the. It's feeling like pretty big, like sports arenas, like 30, mm-hmm. 30 35,000 people at them. And whoa. I bet so, you that's that Bannon guy who's mm-hmm. advising them to do that kind of stuff. That Bannon guy, you know, he reminds me of the guy in Hunger Games. Mm. The the good game maker. The good game maker. Uh, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who, of course, died in the making of it, which I uh, hope that doesn't augur too badly. But. Uh, he, he is Plutarch Heavensby, and as luck would have it, I was thinking the guy reminds me of him so much, of that character. Um, and then I come across a, a speech he gave 2011, five years ago. It's on YouTube. Look it up. It's supposedly Bannon's political ideology or political strategy. There isn't much of that in it, to be honest. But anyway, he's talking about, he, he knows his classics. He's talking about ancient Greece, and he keeps citing Plutarch. I'm like, oh. Yes. Okay. So yeah, he's a he's a smart cookie. And just talking about Bannon, um, I was watching a little skit there from I think it was last night or something. Saturday Night Live was on, and they had you know they have uh, what do you call him playing Trump? Um, Baldwin. Alec Baldwin. Uh, Alec, Alec Baldwin. Yeah. yeah. Alex Baldwin. He he does his Trump. He's dressed up as Trump, and then you have his his advisor. What do you call it? The woman does his advisor. Um, uh, Kellyanne Conway? Mm-hmm. Conway. Yes, Conway. You know. Yeah. Anyway, so they're making based, and every time they do this, they're just ridiculing him, making him out to be a doofus and an idiot and this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the skit, they had uh, they go, oh, "Oh, Mr. President, uh, your national security advisor Steve Bannon is here." So he, so he comes in and he's dressed up as Death, right? You know, he's got the black robe on on the side and the day and the skull mask on. And he sits down and he's, and he's talking with this kind of like voice disorder, you know, this mm-hmm. creepy voice disorder. So they have, I mean, 
those Saturday Night Live people are just it's ridiculous. You know, what I mean? they're not helping. You're not it's so you're sad. Not, you know, sometimes you're funny, and most times you're not because we can see that you're pushing an agenda here that yeah. isn't funny. You're pushing uh, an agenda that is not taking stock of the fact that there are, there are real issues facing people here, and you're making fun. Mm-hmm. of the fact that Trump is president uh, is president and lampooning him and all this kind of stuff. And really, you're trying to divide the population mm. more and more. Instead of kind of getting people to come together, you're actually dividing. And that's what the media is doing with the way to keep on. Uh, it, since his, his, he won the, the election, they've been you know bashing Trump at every opportunity. Uh, and they are doing the same thing. The media and Saturday Night Live are in the same camp, <clears throat> either through articles in the Washington Post or whatever, or through comedy skits, they are attempting to widen the divisions within American society and demonize the people who voted for Trump and polarize the social justice warriors who voted for Hillary. Mm. And they're they're just pushing those two people apart. And when you have people pushed far enough in the two camps like that in, in a country... Well, eventually you have war or something, you know, mm. some kind of civil war. Um, and then Trump, free advice and then to Donald Trump. Trump. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that, and Trump really didn't like that SNL skit too, and he did what he does best: <laughs> is he hit Twitter yeah. and condemned the whole thing. So I tried <laughs> exactly. watching Saturday Night Live last night, and it was totally unwatchable, not funny at all. So free sad. advice, Donald Trump: don't respond to the baits. Use Twitter to get messages out, but for God's sake, don't, because you're, you're way above that now. You, you kick all of their collective butts. You don't need to engage with them. Yeah. We'll see if he takes any. I'm sure he's being told to stop going on Twitter, but can't help himself. We'll see. Well, I think, um, let's, uh, let's go to a, a cop roundup and, uh, get some news about the, Dapple. Unless we have, do we have any okay. other stories we want to just go to? Really, we were going to talk about no, the elections the and referendums and stuff, but uh, I think you can just check that out on the news. Unless, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Let's let's go to our cop roundup. They just said they did not have a warrant. Get out of my house unless you have a warrant right now. Could you keep smiling at me? Like this is some kind of funny thing? Okay, I, okay? there's nothing funny about it. No, hey, then stop smiling. Right, boys! Hand your head! Good! Good now! Hello, gentlemen. Welcome, Brent. Hello. Hey. Thanks. Enjoying the discussion previously. Uh, I, was, I love the Syria updates because it's kind of one thing I don't really get to follow. Um, so I, I really appreciate you guys doing all that. Um, anyway, so, uh, what's happening right now in North Dakota? Um, newest development is that around 2000, um, veterans from, you know, different, uh, United States military forces ha- are started to, uh, started to arrive out at the, uh, Standing Rock, uh, Sioux camp and, um, they were organized by, uh, Wes Clark Jr., who is actually the son of the famous West Clark general guy. Um, and this other guy, Mike Wood Jr., who's a, um, a ex-Baltimore cop and ex-Marine. So um, they've got 2,000 veterans out there just acting as unarmed human shields. 
um, it's a stand between basically the, the water protectors and the police forces. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard is actually out there too. I don't know if you guys know, she's the, um, Democrat from Hawaii in the house of representatives. Mm-hmm. She's been a, uh, very vocal peace, um, proponent. Uh, you know, she's against the war in Syria. You know, she's been speaking out left and right. Um, really, I keep seeing her name pop up everywhere. And to see that, you know, a politician now is like actually going out there. And, you know, she's she's also a, a veteran and, and putting herself, you know, in between police. I, I find that really inspiring. Um, the uh, the campaign to get the veterans out there has really taken off and gone viral. Um, their gun, GoFundMe page as of, uh, you know, like, 30 minutes ago has raised over a million dollars um, and the national nurses union donated $50,000 directly um, to them. It's uh, it's looking really good. We have um, banks pulling out a lot of the banks that are behind energy transfer partners um, uh, are starting to waver. There's been a huge campaign that went viral where people would um, take their money out of Wells Fargo, for example, and um, record you know, just a short little video of them doing it. And I saw one video of one guy, and then I saw another video with, like, five different people doing it. So, um, you know, they go in, they sit down with their banker, and, you know, they tell them the reason they're pulling their money out is because they don't don't appreciate what's happening out in North Dakota, and they don't want to fund these, uh, these pipelines. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, now, because of it, there's uh, a meeting supposed to happen between representatives of Wells Fargo and the uh, Standing Rock Tribe. So there's some progress there. Um, and then on Thursday, activists around the world, t- uh, cities like Tokyo, Seattle, San Francisco, and Min- uh, Minneapolis, did um, different simultaneous um, protests um, to, uh, to kind of stand out and, you know, basically, you know, show up at Wells Fargo and other, and other banks there's a couple of banks in Japan that are actually behind um, energy transfer partners. So um, all these activists around the world kind of coordinated to have this simultaneous action to basically, you know, encourage the banks to pull out. Um, let's see. Uh, interesting little bit of news that I found really cute was that um, the uh, Morton County Sheriff's Department, you know, they've received like $10 million in taxpayer money. They've got all this advanced technology and equipment. They put out a request to the community for supplies. So apparently, that's that's not enough, or they're burning through their supplies too quickly. Um, the uh, the activists, the water protectors, took note, and they went over t- and arranged to donate supplies to the police. <laughs> it's just like wow, like real example of turning the other cheek. There, like, didn't seem quite strategic, mm-hmm. but. Um, you know, it shows that that's what they stand for, you know, generosity and making sure everybody has the, the bare necessities that they need. Um, yeah. That was well, on the on the DPL thing, uh, or DLPA, DLP, DAPL. Just call it the Apple. On the Apple. <laughs> on the Dapple thing. Um, although the vets have arrived there. Yes, they started. Uh, some of them actually came early. Their official deployment is today through the 7th. Um, right. But there are lots of them that came early, and there are lots of them that plan to stay longer. So oh. the the number right now that they had signed up for the deployment was 2,000 veterans. And I think they actually have 2,100 people there total. It could be um, the 3,500. Where are they actually going? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> where are they actually going to? 
they have like let's say there's like one major camp um that's the uh Aseti Sakawan camp and it's actually like kind of like a there's there's several smaller satellite camps around that um but that's the main one so they have them housed in different places all around um some people are staying you know in like local hotels and stuff but most of them are are staying at at one of these camps that are that are around there um and i what's, read an article what's the biggest town sorry god what's the biggest town uh, or city nearby um that's a good question i'm not well, exactly it's quite sure. remote though the middle of nowhere, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it's, Brent, it's on s- probably can it's Cannonball is the nearest town. Brent, I asked you last week about how many protesters were there. I think you said a couple of hundred. And then I read like about these thousands of vets, and I was like, Jesus, that's overkill. But uh the then I read that there's five thousand people there. Yeah, the numbers town. the numbers were, were I was I was off. There's a lot more people than than I thought last right. week. There's definitely like thousands instead of hundreds. Well, and the vets yeah. they plan they plan on basically encircling the the protesters and acting as kind of like a, a line of defense around them. Is that correct? Yeah, human shield. Yeah. yeah. So they they kind of anytime that there's like a, a demonstration action, they kind of put themselves in between the police line and the um, the the water protectors. Um, and some of them, you know, they have like their own equipment. I've seen pictures of them wearing body armor. Uh, they brought gas masks, um, so they're they're a little bit more equipped to deal with the to deal with you know taking hits from over bullets and such. And it's uh, pretty. The weather there is pretty pretty horrible. I mean, it's well below freezing most of the time. Yes. Now the the winter is the winter is officially rolled in, and they it dumped a foot of snow on the ground. So there's now it's like if you look at pictures from from like the last like week or so it's all snow covered ground. Um, and they say mm. that it's, it's generally below freezing. Um, and it can get as low as like two degrees Fahrenheit, which is very, very right. cold. <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> minus, they, yeah. they've been using the supplies and the influx of, of donations in order to construct, you know, more appropriate housing for the people that are staying there. Um, and the governor actually, uh, this guy's name is Jack Dallyrimple. Um, he issued an executive order threatening to fine anyone bringing in supplies for a thousand dollars. So, um, but thus far, it's been remained unenforced. So, there's this weird kind of like situation where you know he's like, if you bring supplies, and we're going to fine you a thousand dollars. But thus far, people have continued to bring in supplies, and nobody's been fined yet. Well, the government um, also sure did, they also turned around and denied that they said that. Oh yeah, I missed yeah. that. <laughs> um, there's also been some reports of police damaging, um, you know, the property of the water protectors. Uh, most notably, a bunch of canoes that were stolen and then destroyed. <laughs> um, they've also fired a lot. Of, some of the protesters have been using drones in order to fly over the camp and get, you know, kind of like a bird's eye view of what's going on to record footage. Um, police have been shooting at those. And we're talking about, you know, drones that are sufficiently advanced, you know, $1,500 to you know, a couple, like a thousand to $1,500 worth of technology. And they're just taking pot shots at it. Yeah. Um, they're also construction cre- has- yeah they also created Sorry? like a snow, a uh, no fly zone to keep reporters out as well. Yeah. They've established a new fly zone so that the news media can't fly helicopters over and take pictures. Um, 
they've, uh, you know, they, they were supposed to stop construction. They don't have the permits to begin the, um, the underwater drilling part where they are actually going under the Cannonball River. They, the permits have not been um, issued yet, um, yet they continue construction. And a lot of the construction has been going on like late at night. So it's it's clear that they know what they're they're not supposed to be doing it, but they're doing it anyway. Um, which is kind of you know it's strange how often we hear the narrative that oh these protesters are violating the rule of law, and here we see that they're actually well within their rights, and the corporation and the police are the ones violating the law. Um, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights just recently issued a statement urging federal, state, and local officials and authorities to de-escalate and demilitarize the situation. Um, most notably stating, you know, they have, you know, these are, these are native people and they deserve to be heard. A big, a big argument I'm seeing from, um, a couple of people and especially like, you know, these weird conservative, uh, outlets is that, you know, oh, these, these native Americans had years where they could have spoken up and said something. Well, it's, they, they did, they spoke up two years ago. There's a recording of their tribal leaders at a meeting in September of 2014, where they, you know, very much opposed the pipeline, were concerned about their water. They expressed all their concerns. And even two years before that, there was another um, another meeting uh, where they had ex- expressed in writing their, their concerns about it and, and opposition to it. So this whole narrative that they, they should have spoken up sooner, it's really not even, it's, it's just a lie. You know, they, they did speak up sooner and they were ignored. <laughs> um, Let's see. Oh, yeah. And then the 13 tribal leaders also sent a letter to President Obama. It's an open letter asking him to intervene. Um, so far, Obama has been, you know, super quiet. He hasn't said anything since, uh, you know, several weeks ago where he was like, well, we're just going to wait and see. Um, there's also been reports of um, jamming technology, electronic jamming. So a lot of the protesters have trouble live streaming um, or transmitting video um, out via cell phone because the police are using some sort of electronic jamming technology um, to, to block it, you know, basically, so you can't get signal. Um, I also read an article recently from somebody who was there. Uh, he worked for um, an activist organization. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But basically, he said what it looked like was a modern-day concentration camp. You know, the, the, main, the main area to the camp is completely barricaded off. Um, they have... Those large spools of razor wire kind of encapsulating the area. Um, the hills that surround the camp are manned by, you know, people that are armed with high-powered rifles. They've got really um, intense lights that shine down on the camp, you know, 24-7, which is a, basically a psychological warfare technique. They also continue to have um, near-constant overflight. So they have you know, helicopters and, and airplanes that kind of circle over the camp. Um, some people have speculated that they're, that's what they're using to jam the tech. Other people are saying that it's, you know, it's a psychological warfare thing. It makes it very difficult for people to sleep. Um, so it's just, it's really bizarre and crazy. This is happening in America in 2016. It just blows my mind, um, which is probably why it's become such a flashpoint for protests. And there's talk of uh, possible getting... na- of uh, the National Guard possibly stepping in. Yeah, they're 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 talking about it, but um, I don't think they I don't think they want to. I think the establishment out there has gotten you know, ever since that girl's arm has blown off. There's been a a, a sort of a uh, a lull in the 
activist police um, interaction. So they've seemed to have been just, you know, they're kind of backing off and just they have this sort of detente now where they, the police, I don't think really, they're, they're severely outnumbered, first of all, and they don't want any more bad PR. And I mean, they've already gotten a ton. They clearly don't have popular support. Um, like I said last week, a lot of police departments have pulled out um, and are not coming back. So um, a lot of them don't really believe in the mission to be there. Um, you know, some of the protesters said you can see it in their faces. I'm sure there is ample, you know, there's probably a couple dozen, you know, psychos that just get off on, you know, shooting unarmed people and destroying their property and generally tormenting them. But, you know, that's Brent, not Brent, the majority of people. Brent, I have, I have some questions for you. Um, this is taking place in South Dakota, right? It's North Dakota. North Dakota. The police are... What North Dakota State Troopers? What do you they're know? What they, Morton County, from? Morton County Sheriff. County. So, yeah, they're, they're local police. They're also um, they they pulled in police there's officers all, from surrounding areas as well. Um, there's there's also a bunch of, of uh, mercenaries, right? Uh, I haven't heard reports of mercenaries, but I mean uh, private contractors. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah the. the Apple Corporation has hired their own security people. Um, one of them, a couple weeks ago, uh, drove into the camp in a, a white pickup truck and was armed. And he was uh, actually arrested by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, the protesters kind of flagged him down. And luckily, no, no shots were fired. But when they searched his truck, they found that he was actually an independent contractor with uh, Energy Transfer Partners. It's a corporation behind the, the pipeline. Okay, another question for you. Dapple Corporation, do you know who's behind it? Do you know any of the companies in the consortium? Is it local? Is it national? Is it international? Um, it's So the company behind it is called Energy Transfer Partners. Um, they are like a large multinational Fortune 500 company. Um, they've been around since 1995. Um, they have investors from all over the world. <clears throat> a lot of banks, um, which is why this whole like bank pullout thing has gone viral and people are encouraging people to pull out of banks like Wells Fargo who's invested. Um, and yeah, so it's it's a large multinational. It's based in Texas. Based in Texas. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oil Corporation. And they want yeah. to not only their, their project mission is to, is to be able to take back an oil from Dakota down to oh. serve the, Illinois. U.S. market? Illinois, yeah. Illinois, for distribution in the U.S. Mm -hmm. or for a field, further field? In the U.S. It's, it's in, in the U.S. US. Yeah, it's internal. What they're basically trying to do is create this pipeline so that they don't have to transport oil via tanker, um, you know, on like rail or um, or truck. But, you know, mm -hmm. they, they maintain that it's more dangerous, that accidents happen more frequently. Um, you know, and, and that's probably accurate. Well, uh, but oil trains have been going off the rails and exploding all over the place. Yeah, but if that happens, yeah. that just contaminates one small area if you put it under rivers and leaks in a river yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can't speak to what's more dangerous or not I'm just wondering um, is this I mean it's, it's going to be it's still be a bit more complicated I think than greed corporations versus the little people um, although you can in the US you can bet that it's substantially that I wonder though to what extent is is it an effort to meet energy needs. Well, I spoke about that the last time we talked about it. That it was mm -hmm. that's what exactly what it is. 
that it's to gain an energy independence uh, as far as possible for the so U.S. do Americans as a whole win or lose with DAPL being success- successful? Ultimately, well, obviously, Americans are, America is an energy-hungry mm-hmm. kind of country and, and needs vast amounts of oil, and uh, it's, it's getting harder and harder to extract, to, to, to extract in, in various places and requires, requires vast investment to, to do that. And, um, and the situation in the Middle East isn't helping. Uh, with Russia, so this is uh, like I was saying on the previous show. This is, I think, this uh, this pipeline is a direct result of Russia's intervention into Syria right. and all of the implications. Because it's, cause it only came on stream effectively within the past couple of years. I mean, it had been planned, to, you know, um, right. studies had been made for, but it never been given the go ahead right. until very recently. Well, last week <clears throat> it came out there was a report that they found. A field four times as large, the largest ever oil field find in the United States. You'd think it would all be gone by now. It's not. And guess where it was? In Texas. Yeah. <laughs> of all places. Well, the problem is that's shale Texas oil. Texas is not dry. Well, that's shale oh, oil. So that's, that's fracking. So that's not easily available. Well, it's more expensive and depending on oil prices and all that kind of stuff. It depends whether it's actually uh, you know, lucrative, to, lucrative enough to actually invest right. in getting it. I mean, the main problem in the world today is that... Uh, in, in the traditional places, the easy access, uh, kind of clean oil, as they call it, you know, is, uh, is, has all, most of it's all been taken. And they're going around trying to find more reserves out, but what they're finding mainly is harder to get at. And there's also a whole transition over to gas that's, that's factoring into it. And the whole geopolitical games that are going on have a lot to do with that transition over to gas away from uh, oil because it's not so easily extractable anymore, uh, or it's harder to extract, i.e. more expensive to extract. <laughs> so uh, it's all very interlinked with all of that, you know. Mm. Right. All right, Brent. Yeah, there's uh, there was one other story that didn't have to do with Apple that I just wanted to mention. Um, there was a uh, shooting not too long ago. Um, where is it? Find my link. This guy was shot in um, South Carolina, and there was video where he was actually killed um, by this this police officer. He was running away, um, running away from him, and was shot five times in the back. And the jury right now is kind of they're they're, they're deliberating. Um, yeah, let's see. His name was uh, Michael Slager, is the officer who shot Walter Scott in the back while he was fleeing. And basically what had happened was he stopped this guy for a traffic um, traffic thing. And I guess, you know, Scott was so scared that he ran from the officer. Um, broad daylight, you know, Scott pulls out a gun, shoots him five times in the back. Now the jury cannot decide whether or not that was murder. Um, and I read wow. a really scary article about it um, written by uh, an African-American guy. But it's it's really kind of scary that, you know, with video, where it clearly shows this officer shooting him in the back as he's running away, they can't decide if that's if that's murder or manslaughter. You know, they're, they're having issues with it. Now, posit that, you know, the situation was reversed. You know, a black man shoots a white officer as he's running away. I mean, that'd be murder one guaranteed. <laughs> so... It's just unreal that, you know, it, it just shows that we really still have a huge problem with um, with racism and inherent bias in America. And you know, people always kind of wanted to push that to the side and be like, oh, we don't have a problem with racism, but clearly we do. Um, so that was really the only right. stream that I wanted to mention. All right. Well, thanks, Brent. No problem. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Brent. Me.
Great show. All right. Talk to you again soon. Thank you. Bye, Brun. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Well, there was a, a short story in our, just to follow up our discussion of uh, the whole Washington Post fake news uh, show that we did last week. Um, and that is that in the U.S., the House of Representatives passed a bill which basically targeted Russian propaganda. So uh, you had a, a vast majority of, uh, of votes in the Congress here in the U.S. Um, who passed this uh, H.R. 6393 Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2017 uh, is what they're calling it. And um, effectively, they're trying to legislate against Russian propaganda. And uh, we've, we've carried a few articles about it uh, in the past couple of days uh, on SOT. And um, so basically this, you know, what we've been seeing in this echo chamber of, uh, of media in the Washington Post and the New York Times and in other places is, uh, is working uh, on the level of uh, U.S. politics. Uh, now, whether or not this, this bill becomes law is, uh, is another question. Um, they lay out, you know, various parameters and, and what they're looking to do in order to implement this, uh, this kind of anti-Russia, Russian propaganda, uh, uh, meme. Um, essentially it could mean the blocking of websites, um, on the web who were accused of such. Um, but yeah. it's just, it's very interesting to see. How it's it's uh, part and parcel of the thinking of the of the larger body of politicians um, in the U.S. at this time, and uh, it no, still has where, to go to the Senate to and go. get passed. What's that? They need to. They, that that's that's the kind of the message that's been you know unsaid, but behind all. The, I mean, this isn't the first piece of legislation. There's been a few things. Look, if they're going to do it, go and do it. What, what am I talking about? Censorship. Stop talking about threatening to do it. Just let's see it. Bring it on. You know, that's what they want to do. They want to impose censorship. Mm -hmm. So go go right ahead. Go and do it. Go on. I dare you. <laughs> Try and legislate truth out of existence. Go for it. Yeah, I mean that's a good point, Neil. It, th this is all under the pretense of you know anti-Russian propaganda, but. Um, I'm sure there are a number of people in D.C., the, the, the deep state players, who, who have been itching for this type of legislation for a long time. Uh, you can't have people out there talking about uh, the truth about 9-11 or, or what's actually occurring in Syria or, or uh, the Ukraine. Uh, so this might be one in a series of greater steps that, uh, that's finally going to be a kind of where the hammer falls on freedom of press uh -huh, on uh -huh. the internet. Yeah, I, I hear you, but they, they can legislate all they want. The mm -hmm. only thing that they can do to impose that legislation is to censor things. Censorship. That's, mm -hmm. that's what they're, that's the bush they're beating around with all this stuff, you see. But that's um, the extent oh, of their yeah. censorship. The extent of their censorship is, is, the the is manipulation. Is to come out and say, uh, not only to come out and uh, you know twist the news, the news reporting on Russia and what Russia is and what Russia is doing, but also to come up with bills that they publicize and announce that we need to, you know, such is the extent of Russian 
propaganda that we need to pass laws that will ban Russian propaganda. They're not going to ban Russian propaganda, but that piece of legislation is actual media news in itself. It's propaganda in itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they, they figure that if they keep talking about this kind of thing, and even up to the point of talking about passing bills, that they will convince as many people as possible that everything they read about Russia uh, in the negative is true and everything they see that is positive yeah. is false. They're not going to, to actually censor or ban news. The censorship is already in place. It's a manipulation of the public mind. Uh, that's censorship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, can get, they can do pretty much exactly the same thing with mm-hmm. manipulation of the story as opposed to actually censoring. And it effectively is censoring. I mean, what's the difference, you know? They either don't report it at all or you report it in such a distorted fashion, fashion that it gives you completely the opposite view. You may as well just yeah. not report it. Yeah. Well, in, in addition to that, I guess the concern is that they would implement some kind of uh, uh, shutting down of sites or or, um, or blocking of sites. Um, I don't know how practical right. that is. I don't know how it would be implemented. But certainly your point is it's well taken, Joe. Then be that this is yeah, in be- and of itself uh, a kind of a, a, a censorship. censorship or a, you yeah. know, a, a counteract in the information war. Against well, you know, who, who blocks websites, according to Americans? China, China and Russia, right? So you're going to do what you you're going to do exactly what you what you're you're. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not going to do that. They're not going to do exactly what they accuse the undemocratic country of of, well, the, of doing the, themselves because that, covertly what, they do cyber attacks. Yeah, but they're not going to do it officially. They're not going to shut down RT in Russia. Not well, yet. they've come pretty close to. But they'll have to have some trumped up reason. They're not going to just do it on a. We're we're doing this for your good. This is this is evil communist propaganda, and it's bad for your mind. So we're going to well, deny you yeah. access in freedom loving America. We're going to deny you access to information. Well, Facebook recently said effectively we're going to start blocking fake news. Yeah. Now yeah, that but that's was fake fake news, uh-huh. right? But right, the, but we they, know they, that they know that they're they're couching it all together. Right. But the point is, they're not going to do it officially. Okay, they will not do it officially unless to help totalitarian kind of way. Uh, we didn't get onto politics in Europe this week, but Angela Merkel, who's possibly going to lose next year, came out and said Russia could try to influence Germany's general elections next year through cyber attacks or disinformation campaigns. So they're blah, blah, blah. not learning the lesson after Trumpocalypse. They're going to push people in that in the direction that they're trying to stop them going in by saying that kind of nonsense. You know? They're going to discredit themselves. These people have no brains. They've got to the point where they have lost the ability to critically think and they can't even figure out things that uh, are in their own best interests, or the things that are not in their best interests. Do they? They're so possessed with their own, you know, ideology and beliefs, and living in their echo chamber that they're actually taking action now that is going to get them exactly the opposite of what they profess to, to what they clearly want to achieve, and by their own hand, they're, they're just they're nuts, you know. And also subject to uh, deep state U.S. forces and and forces that. Uh, that are kind of blackmailing them, manipulating them, and right. pressuring them to to toe the party line, which is well, know, Russia's the bad guy. Yeah, and you know, when in doubt, have a terror attack. And the U.S. no longer controls the DNS uh, web address server either anymore. Yeah. All right. Anyway, on that note, we're going to call it night. Yes, Harrison. Take us out, Harrison. Well, how about what I just said? We're going to, or what someone else just said. We're going to call it a night. So thanks, everyone, for listening.
And be sure to tune in next week. Thanks to Brent for calling in. And, uh, yeah, keep on the SOT page because the news is always coming. So, everyone, take care, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye.